0: Let's read together out of Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. You may have a a heading, something like the genealogy of Jesus Christ, because every king needs a genealogy. So it reads like this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers Judah Begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. We're going to talk about her. Perez begot Hezron and Hezron Begot Ram. Skip all the way down to verse 16. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity... In Babylon, until the Christ, until the Messiah showed up, or another 14. And Father, this morning, as we turn our hearts to your word, Lord, we know that your desire this morning, more than anything, is to speak to us. Lord, is to reveal your character to us. And so, so Lord, help us. Lord, give us ears to hear this morning and hearts that are able to really clearly see your truth to see what's truly at the heart of your heart this morning. As we look at those who you've used to bring your Son into this world. And so, Lord, please just bless our time in your word this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. The the title of my message this morning is The People That God Uses. Now, I'm pretty sure some of us might be a little shocked when we examine the record at who it is these people are that God used to bring His Son into this world. Others will be reminded, oh yeah, we remember those, those people that God has used down through the ages. But all of us should be able to see the heart and the character of God as we really step back, settle in, and look at this record of people that God has used to bring his son into this present world. The record is what it is, team. And you and I, we've got to line our hearts and our thinkings up to that record and allow God's, his record here of the people that he uses really to transform us. Because we are going to see that God uses sinners to bring his son into the world. Now, he doesn't use the religious righteous people. I don't think he ever has, other than to maybe to bring persecution against his church. No, God has always used sinners. And he does that because that way he transforms them into the image of his son, and that way we might bring glory and honor to him as we throw off the lies of our flesh and the, those things that the devil speaks to us about how, you know, somehow God's, you know, righteous enough or holy enough. Listen, God has always used sinners. That's what we're going to see here. But before we do all of that, I want to do a little introduction on the Gospel of Matthew. It's going to take about 10 minutes, but it's going to help you as we, because we're going to spend like a year plus in this book. And so I think as we look at a little introduction here, it's going to help us. This is fact, Rome was governing at the time of of Matthew's writing. And Rome was not only governing over the entire world, it was also governing over Israel. So the spiritual climate of the days and the weeks and the years before anything happens in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, before anything happens, the spiritual climate was this. God had not spoken to the nation of Israel for over 400 years. No prophets, no divine revelation. It has been silent. It's called the silent years. At the end of Malachi, the last Old Testament prophet, to when John the Baptist comes on the scene, there's a 400-year time span of where nothing happens. Of course, the Catholics have added in their books, and they say, hey, we'll tell you what happens during those times. But if you go read those books, you're going, yeah, I don't think so. So when they put the Bible together, those things were not added in. But it's quiet. So for the first time in Israel's history, ever since Genesis chapter 12, where God calls Abraham out and says, I'm going to make you into a great nation, for the first time, God has not spoken to them. No prophet, no messenger for 400 years. So please understand that during those 400 times, and as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you get a really clear picture of how corrupted Judaism was. Because Judaism was the only religion that God was into. He wasn't into all these others. But it was corrupted. There wasn't no prophet coming seeking to make it right. Even those who wanted to walk with the Lord God during those 400 years up into the time of John the Baptist, they had no spiritual advisor to help them on their journey. Only spiritual advisors that wanted to rip them off. And that brings us to Matthew. So as we read the, the accounts of Matthew, we're going to discover Matthew also had a name and it was Levi. You know, I don't know if Matthew was his first name, Levi was his second name, but he also went by the name Levi. We're also going to discover he was a tax collector. Now, just so you know, Levi and Roman tax collector is an oxymoron. The, they, the two can't mix. Now, he wasn't your typical IRS agent. He was an employee of the Roman government, to where he would set up his tax booth, and everybody that came by, he would extract taxes from. And, and you know, it's like, well, wow, how buff was he? No, no, he had a Roman guard standing behind him in full battle gear, ready to enforce any that said, hey, we're not paying. The soldier would step up, you would pay. Otherwise, you'd become, ar- you'd become arrested, and you'd become a prisoner of Rome. And so, you know, the way things were set up is Matthew had to make a certain quota each day or a certain dollar amount, and whatever he made uh, over that, it was his. And so you can kind of see and come to understand why Levi was not very popular amongst his fellow Jewish neighbors. See, not only was he working for those who had invaded their soil, he was also taking money from his fellow countrymen. And so what happened in his life to get him to be on Jesus' team? Well, Jesus walked by him and called him. The same thing he did to you and I. We were doing our thing, maybe ripping people off, extracting money, selling drugs or whatever. And Jesus comes by and he calls us. Or maybe you are just religious and self-righteous and, and God came along and he said, no, 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 that's never going to get you in you'll never get in by your good works because then why did my son have to die? And you go, oh, yeah, you're right. And so maybe he called you. Levi's name tells us he was of the tribe of, oh, you guys are a little sharp this morning, at least over here in this top corner. I mean, so he's the one that should be working in in and amongst the temple because that's what the tribe of Levi did. But no doubt, as Levi looked at that corrupt system in place, as he looked at the Levi priests ripping off all of his people, somewhere he walked away thinking, tax collector and Levitical priest are all of the same profession. They're all ripping people off. Same outcome, different occupation. And so he goes and he becomes a tax collector. Matthew's gospel tells us that, Mark or Mark's gospel tells us that Matthew set up his tax office in Capernaum. Right by the sea. Think about that. Think of who it was by the sea. Jesus set up his base up in Capernaum as well. So there is no doubt in my mind that as the uh, the fishermen came on shore with their greatest catch of their day, that here comes old Matthew. And here comes that big burly Roman soldier in in full battle gear. And so can you picture in your mind the boys, they're coming in with their big catch. And they see off in a distance. They don't see Matthew. They see the Roman soldier. And as he gets closer, they see Matthew. And and they're going, he's going to rip us off. No doubt the sons of thunder and Peter and Andrew had some choice names for this traitor. Because that's who they thought he was. No doubt they had some choice names for him growing up. You see, prior to John the Baptist and Jesus coming on the scene... I'm pretty confident that Matthew, the tax collector, was not the the friend of Peter, Andrew, James, or John. They were enemies. And you think, wait a second. Yeah, but they all ended up on the same team. How is that possible? Well, because Jesus changed all of their hearts. You know, last Sunday night at the family dinner, after our time of sharing with one another... I, I just sat there, and I, and I watched people fellowshipping, talking with one another, and laughing, and I'm sitting there, going, which isn't a new and I'm going, if it wasn't for Jesus, this, these people would not be talking to those people. Those people wouldn't be. Matter of fact, none of us would probably have ever crossed paths if it wasn't for Jesus. And if we did cross paths, we probably wouldn't even acknowledge one another. We just would have walked right on by. I mean, look at, look at this group. Would you, would you have associated with any of these people before you came to Christ? I, I tell you what, none of you look like the people I partied with, so I would have to say no. Maybe you go, yeah, I kind of hung out with people like this, but probably not. You had your group, and then God calls you. And it's the same thing that he does with Matthew. Same thing he does with Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. You know, prior to Jesus calling Matthew to forsake his tax booth, because that's what happens. Jesus says, hey, Matthew, follow me. He leaves everything. But prior to that, the Bible tells us that Matthew's friends were sinners, prostitutes, and other tax collectors. Those were the friends of Matthew. And for good reason, right? Everyone else hated him. But see, all of that changed when Jesus walked past his tax booth and called him. When Jesus reached out to him and lovingly spoke truth to him and called him, the Bible tells us that Levi threw all that off and threw a dinner for Jesus that night. Who showed up? Well, the Pharisees stood outside and mocked, but the the tax collectors, the sinners, and the prostitutes showed up. And as they showed up, it drove those dead religious police people crazy. As Jesus sat there and ate a meal with the prostitutes, the tax collectors, and the sinners. But see, he's always been that way. Jesus came to die for sinners, not for the righteous. Actually, he says, look, I came for the sick, not the righteous. And the only way you're getting into heaven, if you recognize, man, I don't have what it takes, and you turn to Jesus... See, Jesus was open and loving to sinners. He spoke truth to them. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they judged the sinners and they had no love for them. What group are you in? Are you in the group of Jesus that loves sinners and spoke truth to them? Or are you in the group of, of Christians today that judge sinners and have no good words for them, no love for them? It's an epidemic in the church today. We've got to be in the group that loves sinners and speaks truth to them. You know, we showed the Venture of Faith movie last Friday night, you know, and in it, and, and for like a couple of minutes, we're talking about, you know, these guys are looking in at Calvary Chapel trying to figure out what's going on. It's like, yeah, they all go out and invite people to come, and they go out and preach the gospel to come, and, and they're, and it's like, it's crazy. We don't do that over here in our churches, but man, they, that's what they do. So how are we doing here? Have we lost our legacy of going out and inviting people to come, going out and sharing the gospel with people? Maybe we need to be stirred up a little bit. Another thing we need to know is each of the four gospel accounts is different in that they are seeking to reach a different audience. Matthew writes specifically to the Jew, Mark to the Roman, Luke to the Gentile, and John to the church. And the reason you know this is all true is as you read them, you see how each reader kind of is addressing, uh, as are directed by God, different things in their writing. Certainly, if you look at the Gospel of Luke, he was a doctor. All of those doctor-type things he always writes about. Well, yeah, but aren't they all different? Mm, Not really. I think they all have extra detail. Like if all of us witnessed a car accident, you know, we all saw it, some of us would have similar ideas of what we saw, but all of us would have something different from everybody else. That doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just that you saw something different than I did. See, our police officers would see that accident, accident totally different than Miss Rhonda would. And Mr. Body Shop Anthony would see things totally different than Mr. Accountant Danny would. And so as we look into the Gospel of Matthew, all of, the, all of these Gospel accounts are true, They just add flavor and color and detail as they write. As we look at this Gospel of Matthew, there are 53 direct quotes from the Old Testament and 76 references that point back to the Old Testament. So so Matthew writes with 129 references that take us back into the Old Testament. I, I counted. I came up with 117. I'm sure I missed some. But whether it's 129 or 117, both numbers that point us back to the Old Testament is more than the other three gospel writers all combined. They only have like 90-something, where Matthew has 129 or 117 or something like that. Matthew presents Jesus as Israel's long-awaited Messiah and how he's the one of whom Moses wrote about and the prophet spoke about. So Matthew takes great effort to establish the link between the Old and the New Testament. He writes with the Jewish student in mind, bridging that gap from the Old Testament and the New Testament, explaining how the Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you, do you know that there's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that have to be fulfilled by Jesus? All of them. He's fulfilled all of them but, the, but those of his second coming. So what are the odds of one person fulfilling 300 things that had been written thousands of years before? I'll tell you what the odds are of one in seven. If you're to take seven prophecies that spoke about Jesus that he had to accomplish, you know, he was born in Bethlehem, he was called out of Egypt, he he, he was called to Nazarene, that's where he lived, and he had four more to that, it would be like filling the entire state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep. And then you put a man in an airplane, you blindfold him, and you have him jump out, and he gets to walk all across the state of Texas, and he gets one shot to reach down and grab that one marked silver coin. That's the odds of one and seven. The odds of one and 300 has so many zeros behind it, I can't count that far. And yet Jesus has fulfilled all of them. The kingdom of heaven, a phrase used only by Matthew, is seen 32 times in his gospel. The phrase, that it might be fulfilled, appears nine times in regards to the prophecies. And again, only in Mas- Matthew's gospel. The phrase was spoken in reference to the Old Testament is used 14 times in Matthew. Matthew uses the term son of David 11 out of the 17 times it's used in the entire New Testament. So as we go through this record over the next year or so, I, I need all of us to do two things. I need you to do two things. First of all, I need you to put on Jewish shoes. You know, you're, you're a brand new uh, converted Jew. You're born again. And, and I want you to see life through the eyes of a little Jewish boy or young J- Jewish girl. I think it's important. You know, as we do inductive Bible study, we say, look, you've got to step into the passage. So you need to put on your Jewish, you know, if you want Jewish sandals that lace all the way up your leg, I don't care, put on a robe. It doesn't really matter. But, but I want you to step into it and see life through the eyes of Matthew. I want you to be able to see the corruption of how old and how far away they were, but then Jesus comes on the scene and starts straightening it all out. I want you to see the appearance of the long about spoken Messiah. Because again, remember, Judaism was it. And then all of a sudden, here comes Christianity. And so you've been, you, all of your life, you've been told, this is it, this is it, this is it. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene. And fulfills this. And now all of a sudden, this is what you follow. Could you, see, could you see where the questions would come from? Like, well, yeah, but how do we know? And so he's going to keep taking them back into the Old Testament and showing them the scriptures that point to Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. No doubt Matthew had heard about the coming Messiah. A man named Levi would know all about him. The second thing I need you to do is always read ahead before you come. We're gonna we stopped at verse seventeen today. Guess where we're gonna start at next Sunday? 18. You guys are sharp. Hey, hey hey, tell the person beside you we start at verse eighteen next week. It's not complicated. You know? And then wherever we end next week, that's where we start the following week. So I need you to read ahead. It's what we do. It's our heritage. So read ahead. You know, show up, Jewish shoes on, step into the scriptures at home before you show up on Sunday. That way you're going to be the most blessed. Be a newly saved Jew as you start to look through the eyes of a Jewish person at this resurrected Jesus, their Messiah. What are you going to want to know now that the Messiah lives in your heart? What what would be important to you? I believe Matthew's gospel is designed to answer questions that these young Jewish believers had. I think that's why he writes. Now, That's my introduction. As we look at these 17 verses as Jewish believers of Jesus, this family tree that God gives us points to his son through Joseph's line. You know, Mary, Joseph, baby Jesus. In Luke's account, his family tree points to Jesus through Mary's line. Now, what should grab our attention here is that there are five women here that God has used in bringing his son into the world, four with reputable or uh, crazy backgrounds and one that was godly but was accused of having an ungodly background. So we've got to understand that these women are specific God-picked women to show us that God has used these types of people down through the ages. So here's my challenge for any who have any ideas or thoughts or doubts in your mind or in your heart about God or your own salvation, if they don't match up to these images of these women that God has chosen, man, you got to dump your image. you got to dump your thoughts. you got to allow the names and faces of some women in these 17 verses to paint a new picture of your heavenly dad. Because if you don't know who the women are, you're going to be blown away here. See, if you'll set aside anything that is less than a perfect father in heaven that loves you and desires his best for you, if you will set all of that aside... And allow our heavenly father to speak to us about the one who sent his son to die for us. If you'll set all that aside and allow these verses before us this morning. That really seem dead. You know, it's kind of a genealogy. It's like, okay, are we really going to read all these names? No, I couldn't anyway. But if you allow these women that we look at to capture your heart, you'll be changed. As you look at those who God will use. Verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew in his opening here is setting the record straight because every king must have a record to the right of the throne. And Matthew lays one out for us right here in the beginning of this book. Matthew begins by saying, Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel racially and royally. Racially, Matthew uses the name son of Abraham to prove that Jesus was a descendant of Abraham who is the father of the Jews. Abraham was promised 2,000 years ago prior to uh, um, Jesus showing up that through his seed the Messiah would come. Royally, Matthew declares that Jesus was also the son of David fulfilling another Old Testament prophecy. See, God said to David that God would build David a house. See, Dave, remember David said, I want to build you a house, God. And God says, no, 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 I will build you a house. And through your line, you will, uh, your house will never, will never cease. And it doesn't because it, it ends up through Jesus. See, David understood that to mean that the Messiah would come through his genealogy line and would live on forever and ever. The facts of this ancestry before us were carefully preserved. And this is just the first of many proofs that Matthew used to convince his extremely Jewish audience that, in fact, Jesus Christ was the long-awaited Messiah. Because, see, the Jews knew their Messiah must be of the seed of Abraham, and they knew that he must be of the son of David. But it had to be proven. So you know how many Jews today can prove that they uh, would have the, the right to the claim of, of Messiah today? None. Because the genealogical records were destroyed in 70 AD. So there is no genealogy record. No one could claim that I'm of the tribe of Judah. Well, how do you know that? I just believe that. Sorry. Uh, wrong answer. No. But see, they don't need the genealogy records no more. Because the Messiah has already come. There's only one Jew who can prove that they are the Messiah, and it's Jesus the Christ. And in the first 17 verses of Matthew, we we meet 46 people whose lifetime span is over 2,000 years here. All of them were ancestors of Jesus. But if you know your Old Testament, some of them were at very interesting lives. So as you look over these 17 verses here, we find some of the heroes of the faith that are listed in Hebrews chapter 11, namely Abraham, Isaac, and David. We also find some women who had some rather, well... Shady reputations like Rahab and Tamar. In this list, we also see ordinary Jews like Hezron, Ram, and Nashon. We also see Jews who had, well, they didn't lead a very perfect life like Bathsheba. We also see those of Gentile origin, Ruth and Rahab, as well as those who were evil in this family tree like Manasseh and Jeconiah. So pretty interesting family, is it not? I don't know, maybe your family is kind of interesting that way as well. But I hope we can see that God is not limited by human failure, our ancestry, or by our own sin. He now, still like then, works through ordinary sinners. Okay, so that's your history lesson for the day. Now let's talk about four women in Matthew chapter 1. The first woman we come to is in verse 3. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. You can read all about her life in Genesis chapter 38. Family responsibility was important to the Jew. They prided themselves on that, and even still to this day, they pride themselves on family responsibility. But I believe that as God puts Tamar into this record, he does so to prove to them that their external things that they did were not enough to have a right relationship with God, Because remember what Jesus says all the way through the Gospels? You know, he says, do what they say, but not what they do. Because they are a bunch of hypocrites. You know, they, they thought if they had this outward thing going down, that they were righteous and that God was pleased with them. But the reality is, he wasn't. Because their hearts were wicked and their hearts were evil. Okay? So, so God's going to destroy that by putting Tamar in here. Judah was Tamar's father-in-law. Judah is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. He's one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Tamar was given Ur, Judah's firstborn son, to be his wife. But he was wicked in the sight of God, and so the Lord God killed him. So then Judah says to his next son, Onan, Hey, Onan, I want you to go into your brother's wife, and the first child that will be born, you'll raise up an heir to your brother. Well, Onan knew that that first child, that that heir, would not be his own. So he treated her more as a sex toy. And so he would go in and have sex with her, but in a manner of where she would never become pregnant. And in doing so, his actions displeased the Lord. And the Lord did what to him? Killed him. him. So, but again, so here's what we need need to know. All of this was no fault of Tamar's. It was the fact that Judah married this wife and they produced some pretty ungodly offspring. Okay, so that, that's what happened there. And so that's, you know, the reason it happened was Judah's first two sons were wicked. Well, Judah is a little concerned at this point. He's looking at his son population dwindle. He only has one left. So he says to Tamar, why don't you remain a widow and just go back and live in your father's house till my, my son Shelah is growing? But God records also for us that until my son is growing, lest he also die like his brothers. That's what he was concerned about. So Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house and waited. But Judah never comes through on his promise. So Tamar takes matters into her own hands. This one is in the genealogical record of Jesus. She takes matters into her own hands and she disguises herself as a harlot in this area where Judah is out shearing sheep. Because when they'd shear sheep or bring in grain, it was always a festive time. You know, and so she kind of sets up her little, I don't know, tent or something outside, you know, where he's shearing his sheep, and he, she catches his attention. Of course, she's dressed up as a harlot, so he can't tell who she is, and so she, he comes to her, and she goes, wait a second, big boy, I want some payment up front, and so he tells her, you know, I will give you a goat. Well, do you have your goat? Nope. Nope. Well, then you need to give me something up front as a promise that I know I'm, I'm going to get the goat. So he gives her his signet ring, his staff, and his cord. They do their thing. She goes home. She puts on her widow garments again and just waits. Well, meanwhile, Judas has a servant to take the goat back to give to her. And it's like he can't find her. So he goes to the closest town. Hey, where's the harlot that sits out here? We have no harlot that sits out there. So, you know, they just go, you know, it's like, okay, whatever. Well, meanwhile, three months later, there's a belly growing. And Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child of harlotry. And so what did Judah say? Hey, bring her out here and burn her. Because see he had the whole forest in his eyes and that's all he could see. See, I think this way he's going, hey, this way I don't, I can, I don't have to do, promise, do, I can clean up my promise to her. And so when she's brought out, she sent her father-in-law saying, by the man to whom I, uh, uh, these belong, that's who is the father of the child. Please determine who these are. And so it was the cord, the staff, and the signet ring. And if you look down at verse three, Judah begot perez and Zerah by Tamar. But Tamar had to trick him and act as a harlot for this to happen. Now Judah going into his daughter-in-law is actually forbidden by the law. They both needed to be stoned. Good thing they weren't in the Levitical system yet. But here they are in the genealogy line of Jesus. And you at times wonder if Jesus really has forgiven you. Of course he has, silly. Look at, what he's, look at who he's used here. Look what the Lord God has allowed into his genealogical record. And for punctuation mark on this, Perez is found in Luke's genealogy as well. So what is the fact that Tamar shows up in the record speak to us about the nature of our God? How about mercy at the minimum? Our God is merciful to us if we'll come to him. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He brings beauty out of ashes. His grace. He can transform people's lives. He can restore lives. Sexual purity was an important thing to the Jew. So God shows the Jews again that they were not his chosen people because of their sexually moral lifestyle by using Tamar in the line of the Messiah. All of these things are calculated by God to kind of wake up the Jewish people they are saved the same way that you and I are, our team, by his indescribable grace through faith. Next, we find Rahab mentioned in verse 5. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. You can read all about her story in Joshua too. Rahab was a harlot as well. Remember that the, you know, Joshua was leading the troops up to Jericho. They crossed the Jordan, and he sends out the spies, or actually he sends the spies out before they cross, or vice versa, I'm not sure. I don't remember. But she takes the two spies and hides them from the king. And, they, and, they, and, she, and she says, she go, and, they, and they say, look, if you don't tell anybody that, that we were here, you'll be saved. Remember the story? And, it, and then they give her these two, the, the little scarlet thread and says, look, you need to tie this in your window. And so she hides them. When the walls fell, fell, the only part of the wall that was still standing was where Rahab was. And so Rahab brought her family in and they survived. We find Rahab in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. She's one of two women there. Please remember, God remembers Rahab for her faith, not for her past. See, I think the devil wants to remind us of our past, but God reminds us of our present. God doesn't remember the things that we failed at in the past. Nor does he remind us of the dumb things we did last week or last month or yesterday or maybe even this morning, amen? God doesn't remind us of those things. I mean, how would you like to wear the label of what you were before you came to Jesus? I don't think any of us would. Or how would you like to wear a label of who you were last week? I don't think any of us would. When you feel like a failure, please remember, Rahab rose above her feelings through her trust in God and became an awesome woman of faith, and you can do the same thing. You just got to get out of your feelings. You got to look up. See, she did not allow fear to affect her faith in God's ability to deliver her from her immoral lifestyle. And we see Rahab in this record of the Messiah. She becomes a beautiful picture of grace, of getting something you don't deserve. Plus, she was a Canaanite. God had told Joshua, as you come into land, wipe out all of the Canaanites because they're so ungodly. And yet God makes an exception here because her heart bowed to God. Her first son with Solomon, her husband was Boaz, and he's in Luke's account as well. Racial superiority seemed like it was always a stumbling block to the Jews, you know? Remember how they looked at or, or thought towards Gentiles? They, they seemed to think that they were always a cut, cut above the rest. Man, we're, we're God's chosen people, and they totally despised the Gentiles. You know, a good old religious Jew would say, God, I thank you, I'm not a Gentile, a dog, or a woman every morning when he arose. You know, their thought was, let's not touch these unclean dogs was more than just a saying to them. But again, God wants to show them by using someone of a different race, a Canaanite, a harlot, and bringing his son into the world that all their views were wrong. The third woman we find mentioned in the genealogy line of Jesus Christ is Ruth in verse 5. Solomon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. You can read her life in the book of Ruth. You guys are sharp. You know, the one thing we know about her husband, Ruth's husband, is that he was ruthless before he met her. That's my only joke. I can know. Think about it. You'll get it. We also know Ruth was a Moabitess. Okay? She was. Naomi and her husband go to Moab because they think God's not going to provide for them in the land of Israel. Naomi's Naomi's sons meet these two women who are Moabites. Listen to Genesis 23.3. An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord even to the tenth generation which really means like never going to happen, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. And yet Ruth is third generation. And yet she's not even supposed to enter the assembly, and yet here she is in this genealogy line. And the reason they're not supposed to enter in is because they did not meet the Israelites as they were escaping from Egypt. They did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam the son of Baor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Remember Balaam, donkey, donkey spoke to him thing. But here she is. She should not even be here. The law, for, you know, God's word forbid it. You know, and here she is. A Yahweh fearing Ruth the Moabitess who loves Yahweh. I mean, I love how God yields to hearts that bend to his. And I don't know, maybe that's you this morning. Man, you're just stuck in your thing, and I'm not going to receive anything from God. Well, listen, then you won't receive anything from God at death either. And it's a proven statistic. 100 out of every 100 people are going to die. But if you will bend to your heart to God's, God will treat you just like he does Ruth. And he'll accept you. He'll receive you just as you are. Nobody cleans themselves up. No, God does that. God just says, come to me. Let me do that work. Because see, if you don't come, you're not getting in. The Jews nationally hated the Moabites. They were taught if you talked to a Gentile or touched a Gentile, you'd be considered unclean. You know, you'd have to wipe your feet off off your feet if you were walked in into a Gentile land as you came walking back into the the nation of Israel. Remember Peter? Peter's born again, spirit-filled, Acts chapter 2. Remember when Peter goes and Acts chapter 10 to Caesarea, and meets with Cornelius, the Gentile. Remember what Peter said? You know how unlawful it is for me, a good Jewish boy, to be here with you Gentiles? I mean, that was, that was built into them. And yet God's proving to them time and time again, no, your thinking is wrong. I mean, here it is. Here's Ruth. And if you've ever read her life, you've discovered that she is a very godly, courageous woman. So what does this show us about God by using Ruth and bringing of himself into this world? His grace again, team, in a huge way. She got something she didn't deserve. The Israelites were also proud of their heritage. You know, like we're God's chosen people because through us, the Messiah will come to deliver us from all of our enemies. You know, we possess God's word. We are are it, man. We're the hot tamale. And yet if you look at verse 6, There's not a lot to be proud of there. And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Of course, David and Bathsheba had sex, produced a baby. It's like, what do we do? Let's send Uriah up to the front lines and let let him be murdered. That's the story in a short version. I mean, her that had been the wife of Uriah, it's Bathsheba. I mean, she's not even named here. But instead, her husband who was murdered is named. Her account's in Second Samuel chapter 11. The nation of the Jews are proud of their history, yet for some reason, God wants to remind us all about Uriah and what happened to him. The thing to remember is David had other wives. Okay, he did. So, so it could have come through a different wife, but God chose, no, it's going to... The genealogical record is going to come through Bathsheba, David's wife. God chose her to be in the family tree to bring his son into this world. See, God, God isn't one strike and you're out. That's not our God. That might be religion. It might be other people, but that's not our God. Matthew has David and Bathsheba And Solomon, their son named, in his genealogical record. In Luke's account, it's David and Bathsheba and Nathan, their son. Same parents, different sons. And so again, they're in in Joseph's line and they're in Mary's line. And as we look at what God did through David and Bathsheba, this screams of the forgiveness of God. This is what God wants to do in our lives. He wants to forgive us. This also screams of a God of second chances. Yeah, they blew it. But God gives him a second chance. Remember, God writes of David, this is the man after my own heart. Why? Because he owned his sin. He didn't say, well, it's somebody else's fault. I'm a victim. No, he owned it. And yet he was a major sinner, just like you and me. And yet he was the man that captured God's heart. Why? Because he never rose above that. He served the people. And he loved the people. Even though he blew it. The screams of a God who doesn't write people off, ever. God will never write people off. You might discount yourself because of your past. God doesn't. God says, get in the game, man. We've got a lot of work to do. Last person in the list for us is Mary. Please notice verse 16 is different from all the others and ends with, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So Matthew makes it very clear right from the beginning that Joseph was a stepfather and not the actual father of Jesus. Now, what's interesting here is we read of Mary not doing any of these crazy things these first four women did. Okay, so why are you bringing her up? Well, here's why. Because everyone in her town knew she got pregnant outside of marriage. You know, in today's day and age, it's like, yeah, big deal. Okay, well, let's make it this way. Everyone in this town knows you're a pedophile. That's what it was like back then, if you had sex outside of marriage. They all thought and knew that Mary had sex outside of marriage, and that day in culture, scorn and ridicule was the minimum. People whispering behind her back. And for what? For being godly. And you know what, team? This did not fade away in time. Mary lived her entire godly walk, all of her life, with those in her town believing that she had had sex outside of marriage and that Jesus was an illegitimate child. If you read the old King James, it uses the B word. I'm not going to use that word here. For proof of what that I am right, that everybody in town knew about it, John chapter 8, verse 41, you should write it right here. In Matthew's account, this is what it says. Jesus is in a dialogue with the religious Pharisees of his day. And they say to Jesus, we were not born of fornication like you were. See, what they're saying is, look, we know you're an illegitimate man. We know your mom was sexually active outside of marriage. See, everybody knew. And so every one of us has to walk out and work out our own salvation with fear and trembling regardless of how the world treats us as Jesus works in us and through us, just like Mary had to. So Mary hadn't done these things, but the record of her life by her townspeople said she had done these things, but she never allowed it to affect her life. You know, as you look at this list of women over team, you can only come to one conclusion. None of God's kids ever strike out or are benched. Man, you messed up. You're on the bench. No more game time for you. No, God, our God's never like that. Our God is the opposite of that. He is faithful and just to cleanse us and forgive us of our sins when we confess them to him. He is. Perfect Nobody's perfect in here. And if you are, you're in the wrong church. But when we blow it, we come to Jesus and we ask him to forgive us. And he does and he cleanses. He drains the poison out of our heart. The Bible says he cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. See, when you come to Jesus on his terms, his blood covers over your sin. And you enter into and you become a child of God. Listen to the words of King David in Psalm 32, five, I, And this is when he had blown it with Bathsheba. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He always forgives, team. Always. In the beginning of this same psalm, David writes this. When I kept quiet about my sin, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. Nothing good comes from being distant with our Jesus. He has chosen you to use you. So you know what? Confess your sin to him. Allow him to drain the poison out of your heart. You know, you may see it, you may think it, you may do it, whatever. Just allow him, just come to him. And keep coming to him. Well, I've been this way forever. Well, how many times have you went to Jesus then? Once? Twice? How about thousands? Every time you blow in a day, come to the Lord. Say, Lord, forgive me, cleanse me, change me, and then go the other way. And then if you have to ask him for forgiveness again, do it again. Don't give up. He's waiting for you to see how desperate you want to be changed. And God will change you. But you have to come to him on, on his terms. He has chosen you to use you. Always confess it. Never think it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. Never think that God is done with you. Both of those are lies from the pit. You know, as we look over these first five women with Jewish eyes in the genealogical record, each one of them should have been left out. The four because of what they did in their past and Mary because of what they thought she had done. All of them should have been left out. But the Lord God wants to prove that the Jewish way of thinking was wrong. And all people can come and receive based upon the grace of God, period. I mean, that's the we're saved by grace through faith. Not That not of works. Salvation is a gift of God. It's not something I do. If it was of works, then we could all boast about it. But we're saved by grace through faith. That not of ourselves. All can come. Now, we know the devil spins all of this by saying, well, the Lord can't use you because, man, you really blew it over there and you sinned greatly or you failed your family responsibility or you messed this up. But please know, all of those are lies. And God's record here of truth should trump over any types of feelings that you have when you listen to those lies. Because truth always triumphs over feelings. You know, as you look at these women in this record, including all Mary had to go through, this is the true picture of the God that you and I serve. Jesus came to save sinners and not righteous people. That's a fact. And we see that. I mean, he is called a sinner, or he he is called a friend of sinners and a drunkard and a glutton. That's what they called Jesus. Did they have that right? Partially. He was a friend of sinners. Jesus is full of compassion and extremely long-suffering and patient. That is fact. God is so patient and long-suffering for you. But you know what? There comes a time when it's too late. That's why the Bible says today's the day of salvation. Today's the day to get right with God because nobody has promised a tonight, let alone a tomorrow. You could go home. You could die of a heart attack or a stroke. Boom, what happened to that guy? I don't know. He just died. Today's the day to be right with Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is overflowing with grace and mercy. That is fact. He is. Jesus is our God who's willing to give second chances in the midst of moral failures. That is fact. We see that with David and Bathsheba. It's fact. And our Jesus always offers forgiveness based upon his finished work and not any work or act that I seek to try to achieve. That is fact. And we can learn all that by looking at these women. I mean, this is the genealogical record that God used for his son. And it teaches us that all of these things is true of our God. I mean, it's, it's proven here. So if your thinking all the time doesn't match this, you need to align your thinking with God's actions that are presented here and have your mind renewed. Because this is, the, this is it. God can and desires to use us in spite of us. So, family responsibility, sexual purity, racial superiority, proud of their heritage, people not believing Mary, and yet in the midst of all of these failures, God still loves and works through His chosen people. He always has. He always will. He, he's not like the church parts of the church today that have said, "Well, God's done with Israel. He's written them off." No, He hasn't. God hasn't written. He's still going to work with them the, after the rapture of the church. In spite of all the failures, God still loves us and wants to work through us. You know, I don't know about you, but as I look at these women and how God chose them and called them, it speaks volumes to me in the New Testament, of what God can and will do in my life. And I hope it speaks volumes to you as well, as we really get a firsthand look at the people that God has used to bring his son into this world, less than perfect people. You know, if you or I are God, we would have picked different people. But God chose these. And he does it, does it for a reason. Because it speaks away all the lies that the world speaks to us. It speaks away all the lies that the devil speaks to us. And God uses these to show us those who he uses. And that's fact. Father, we're thankful this morning for all that you want to do in our lives.